Disrupting Japan, Episode 24. Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Today we're going to talk about gaming, or rather, the business of gaming. Rintaro Oyaizu once ran his own gaming publisher, and now manages all game development for CyberAgent and its subsidiaries. Overseas listeners may not be familiar with CyberAgent, but they are one of the most powerful internet content and venture companies in Japan, and they run some of the largest blogging and gaming platforms here. Now, I'm not really a gamer, but it's fascinating how in Japan, every new generation of technology cuts the legs out from under the market leaders, and a new generation of companies muscles into that space. And it's happening again right now as the third generation of Japanese gaming companies are coming into their own. We talk about CyberAgent's internal processes for deciding which games get made and which get distributed, and Rintaro also has some insights about what will become of the recent stock swap between Nintendo, a first generation game company, and DNA, a second generation game company. And how they might compete against the new, more flexible third generation gaming companies. It's great stuff, and I think you'll enjoy it. So let's get right to the interview. Okay, I'm sitting here with Rintaro.、Mm-hmm. Thanks for sitting down with me, and thanks for、uh, buying me to、no、be here this time. No problem. Cheers. Cheers. Now,、uh, Rintaro is the director of CyberAgent Game Headquarters. And Game Headquarter oversees all of Cyber Agent's gaming subsidiaries, and there's a lot of them.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why don't you tell us, you know, briefly? Yeah, I mean, you don't have to list all of the subsidiaries. Okay. For the people, especially overseas,、uh-huh. who might not be that familiar with Cyber Agent, tell us a bit about the types of games Cyber Agent makes. Okay. Okay. Our company is a bit unique because we have about ten subsidiaries、uh, within the group. The reason why is For example,、uh, there's a subsidiary called Grunge,、uh, yeah. which used to be a joint venture of Mixi because Mixi platform was big, and we wanted to have you know strong connection with the platform. And for well, there's a subsidiary called Griefone. Griefone is a joint venture of Gree. Right. Yes, Gree is also a big platform. So it seems that most of CyberAgent's subsidiaries they're establishing companies for strategic rather than、yes. creative reasons. Yes. Yes. Okay. So strategic regions is like the biggest part. Another example: there is a company called Green Monster. This is a joint venture line. And there's another company called Sci Games. The stakeholder of Sci Games is 22 percent on DNA. So tell me, within each subsidiary,、uh-huh. other than the charter of of developing games targeted at a specific platform,、uh-huh. is there a lot of creative difference、uh, between yes, the yes, groups? Yes. So there's a lot of different types of people within the groups. For example, G Crest, one of the subsidiaries, specializes in female-targeted games.、Actually. So what what is involved with a female-targeted game? And I'm praying it's not just put lots of pink in it. And it's all about creating beautiful male illustrations. Okay, so it's very similar to the the manga that are targeted yes, women here. Yes. Yes. Okay. That's right. That's right. Characterization of each of the character. Is really detailed conversations we have with the game and the user is really really detailed and real. Okay, and so you, you put a lot more effort in the the drama. Yes, the, yes, the that's right. Exploring the characters. Right, that's right. Than you would in a male fo- mm-hmm. male targeted、mm-hmm. game. I'm not a game 
person. Okay. I'm, I'm yeah. fascinated with the okay. game business, mm-hmm. but I know very little. I'm not a gamer. But I think it is really interesting the variation we're seeing, not only within a single company, but the way games play out internationally. Okay. So you, you worked in New York City yes. as well, right? Yes. So did you notice a significant difference between the gaming culture in America and the gaming culture in Japan? Ah, uh, yes, yeah. yes, big time. Okay, um, tell me about that. I established a company called CyberX NYC with intentions to work with Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA to build sports-oriented card battle type of games in the United States. All right, all right. And in Japan, card battle type of where you collect cards, make up your team, and battle with other opponents became a big market in Japan. From that information, I thought, you know, sports was a big thing in the United States. So sports and card battle should fit in the market. seems logical, right? Right. So I want to become number one, the first one to, you know, launch that type of game in the States. I was a CEO at the moment in Japan, but um, decided to leave my staffs and everything behind go to the states to do all the negotiations uh-huh. with major league baseball and like all the sports associations well, licensing can be tough i mean oh what, yeah yeah it was my how first did it time. play out <laughs> um you know the negotiations and you know uh, getting the approvals went well so we were the first ones to actually launch but it just didn't go out well my assumptions are that the majority of the population in the states did not play games through their smartphones yet so what, what year was this? Um, this was 2012. 2012. Yes. Still, that 2012, a lot of smartphones, good penetration yes, at that point. Yes, yes, No, but I'm, I'm always fascinated. Business ideas that seem great on paper, uh-huh. but don't work out, uh-huh. have a special fascination for mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. So if you had to pick one or two reasons that it didn't work out, what, what were the reasons for it? That the market timing was too fast. After our launch, there were about three players from Japan doing the same thing with Major League Baseball and NFL, but they all failed. The second reason would be we were spending a lot of money on smartphone advertising for our app. When we compare the metrics of user acquisitions, uh, the fantasy games were better compared to Major League Baseball. But it is fascinating to me how, how gaming is very local. It seems similar to music, for example. Mm-hmm. So music in Japan, you've got a few international hits, but it's mm-hmm. primarily Japanese artists. Mm-hmm. Same thing in the States. There's a few imports, but it's primarily U.S. artists yes. and, and some British ones. Yes. Gaming seems very much like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've got a few mega hits like uh, Candy Crush uh-huh. or Clash of Clans. Yes. But what percentage would you say of Japanese gaming is Japanese homegrown? Probably 80% or 90% okay. in Japan because uh, looking back strange. in history, yes, Japanese consumer gaming was really strong, you know, starting from Nintendo, yeah. Sega, Square, Enix. So what is it? Why do some games just take off internationally, mm-hmm. whether it's Super Mario mm-hmm. or Pac-Man uh-huh. or Candy Crush? Uh-huh. Is it a simplicity? What, what makes an international mega hit? Probably uh, one thing would be simpl- simplicity. The second would probably be nonverbal character, illustration, okay. um, characteristics. Um, huh. the, the third one would be perfection, I guess. Perfection? Perfection. Um, let's say, for example, Clash of Clans. Right. I think the game balance, really high level, 
it's really close to perfection. Okay, I see what、yeah. you mean. So it's just very well balanced. Very... Yes, well balanced. But then we have things like Puzzles and Dragons,、mm. huge、mm. monster success、mm. in Japan.、Mm-hmm. It seems to meet all those criteria.、Mm-hmm. It's simple. It's well designed. It's addictive. <laughs> But it doesn't seem to have much success outside Japan. Yes, it would probably be the character or the tone of the illustration. I don't think it fits the Western countries. Okay. Yeah. You know, this is something I've always kind of suspected.、Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a B two B guy. All of my companies and most of my time is spent selling software and technology、mm-hmm. to other companies.、Mm-hmm. I get that.、Mm-hmm. I can look at a piece of technology and I can say, ah. This type of person needs it. He'll probably pay this much、uh-huh. for it, and here's how you sell it to him.、Mm-hmm. Now, when you get into consumer brands,、mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a little fuzzier.、Mm-hmm. But to me, gaming seems almost like voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> it seems very unpredictable、uh-huh. for what will be a success and what won't. You're yeah. right. You're、yeah? right. Okay, so it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> but th- I think、um, there's one flow. For instance, fashion. There's a there's a big flow coming from Europe. Or maybe United States, Japan. Okay. Then from Japan to Taiwan, or Japan to Korea, and from in music,、um, Japan to Taiwan. Right. Right. Yeah. Japan to China, Japan to Korea, Japan to Asia itself. Yeah. Yeah. From Japan to Asia, I think there's a big flow、uh, in terms of like animations, comics, games. We're starting to see that wave going from Japan to like, for example, Taiwan. Right. Right.、Um, we've launched a couple games in Taiwan and. We've seen a couple small hits, but growing. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and I've also noticed a lot of game developers here, Cyber Agent included,、uh-huh. has uh-huh. been making big investments in Thailand,、mm-hmm. in Singapore.、Mm-hmm. Is this primarily a marketing function where they're trying to sell Japanese games there, or are they trying to cross pollinate and get local games developed in Thailand back into Japan?、Um, it's more about exporting games to Asia. They're mostly marketing. Yes.、Efforts. Yes. Okay. Yes. Interesting thing is for gaming, there's no successful Japanese developers in Korea. Really? Yes. I don't know. So Korea might be just unique. Well, Korea is very into Japanese culture in general,、mm-hmm. but they have a very, very dynamic gaming market. Yes. Yes. On their own. That's right. Exporting games to Korea might not be a good, you know, idea. Tough but, local competition. Yeah. China, Taiwan, and Malaysia, Singapore. Thai, Vietnam, Indonesia. So, so tell me then, if even if we're we're admitting that developing a game is like signing a new rock band, it's、mm-hmm. it's unpredictable.、Mm-hmm. What's the debate that goes on inside CyberAgent when you guys are deciding whether to fund a new game, when you're deciding to market a new game?、Mm-hmm. How, how do you weigh the pluses and minuses? What's that equation? Within our company,、uh, we make a lot of prototypes,、uh-huh. and we check it out. A lot of people say, "Oh, this is cool," or a lot of people would say,、um, "I don't think this will, you know, work out." Do you do that testing just internally, or do you buy a bunch of college students and pizza and beer and say, "We do it internally." Okay, but it's up to the producer. Even if there's like a negative opinion,、um, if the producer has the will, then the project proceeds. All right. Yes, because we we just never know. The most important thing is the motivation or the vision of a producer. This I'm, I'm having flashbacks to my musician days. It's very much,、um, yeah, very much the way it runs. Just、uh-huh. it's finding key people who believe in the idea and the、yes. people behind it,、yes. and say we're going to put this out here. And then, I mean, once it's out there, it either sells or doesn't.、Uh-huh. 
But I guess until that point, until you put it out in front of the customers,、uh-huh. you're never really sure how it's going to going to go. Yes. So no one has the right answer. So it's it's just up to the person who wants this project out in the market. All right. Yeah. So does that process lead Cyber Agent to focus on simpler games? That with shorter release cycles, or do you also do you know multi-year development cycle games? The average pace would be one year for、okay. development. Yeah. All right. We don't have the experience of taking risks similar to like consumer gaming, where you know, for example, Final Fantasy、yeah. probably takes about three years, fifty million dollars. No, we we can't take that kind of chance because you know. Within the two or three years, the market trend just changes. We do need to invest in a certain time so that the quality of the you know content is ready for the market. Or you know, so I guess you know, cyber agents' overall strategy then is in your position, you're overseeing nine subsidiaries. Yes. Within that portfolio of games,、mm-hmm. some will be hits, some will be terrible, and no one will、yes. like. But on average. You guys will still make money,、mm-hmm. and then learn from that experience.、Uh-huh. Our strategy is basically doing everything and seeing what works. <laughs> It's not make, a bad strategy. Make、so. different types of games, make a develop in-house, invest outside. We basically stick in Japan, but we try some in Asia. Right.、Uh, we tried a lot in the United States before, and we want to seek some revenge there in the, that market. Japanese gaming companies have a hard time in the U.S. recently. Uh huh. Yes. The other way around too, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very seems to be a local business.、Uh-huh. So we just don't stick to one thing, and we don't, you know, decide top down. It's more of a bottom up kind of culture. Excellent. The the game designers have a lot of autonomy. Yes. If they can find people within the company、uh-huh. who understand their vision, the game gets made,、mm-hmm. and then the the users make the final decision whether they like yes, it or not. Yes. But our strength actually is daily ops or operation itself, because internet gaming is all about operation. In what way? Check the data, assume what the users are feeling, and answer to them. Okay. Well, can you give me like a a specific example of、okay. like how this is useful? It's you know, mostly about data mining. For example, there's a fantasy RPG car battle game. We decide to you know sell female character kind of card within the gacha. All right. You know what a gacha is.、Um, Where you pay like three hundred yen to receive one card randomly. Okay. But the main incentive would be like this strong card or this cute card. So they're they're drawing cards for three hundred yen per draw, trying to acquire a particular card、yes. or a particular yes. set of cards. Yes. Yes. And so when you're mining this data, what are you looking for? What are you optimizing? To see whether, for example,、uh, we check to see whether this certain gotcha incentive was effective or not. So, for example, if you put together a certain a certain gotcha, a certain collection of、mm-hmm. of cards they're、mm-hmm. trying to draw, you'll use the backend data to determine whether enough people have interest in it. Yes. yes. And if they don't, you might make it a little more attractive. Yes. Either cheaper or maybe more powerful. Uh huh. And you'll you'll tune it in real time as、yes. people are playing. Um. Yes. Certain gotcha would you know last for like seven days. Okay. Then we'll look at the data and say, oh, it worked. And the the reason it worked is probably because of the illustration. All right. It was really cute, or the it might be a reason because of the card was really strong. Then we would you know try to seek for more cuter in a taste, which is similar to this one. I see, and I suppose the same data mining, the same、uh-huh. analytics,、mm-hmm. the same engines will work exactly the same way、mm-hmm. across many different games,、mm-hmm. and you can share that knowledge 
of your consumer behavior mm-hmm. across different games and different companies mm-hmm. within Cyber Agent. Mm-hmm. Okay, I get that. So it's, it's similar to you know running a convenience store. Well, no, when, when you explain it as gaming as a front end to back end analytics, it makes a lot more sense to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you That's know, amazing. Consumer gaming is all about investing into this big project, just make the perfect game, then launch into market and just market it. Now, you can't change afterwards, but intermittent gaming, um, you can always change the content. Right. You yeah. can tweak it, add on, change. So we just look at the data, seek for what the users are really user perception. Then we just try to answer our best. With a typical game, how many in a given week on a particular uh-huh. game, how many of these parameters are you playing with? Is it four or five? Is it hundreds? Hundreds. Really? <laughs> okay. Well, this actually brings up another point, which I find both interesting and horrifying mm-hmm. about gaming today. Mm-hmm. These free-to-play games with uh, micropayments built mm-hmm. in. These games are everywhere. For our non-gaming listeners, mm-hmm. it's basically a game that's free-to-play and you pay a little bit extra to get more gold in the game uh-huh. or a nice sword or sometimes just a, a nice-looking hat that your uh-huh. avatar can wear. Yes. And this particular type of game seems to be taking over the gaming world. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it is that very data-driven, highly optimized back-end that, that's driving the spending behavior. Mm-hmm. That cyber agent, do a lot of the games fall into this category? And, and what's, your, what's your take on that? Why is that so appealing to people? This mega paradigm shift of the smartphone and internet combined together. Smartphone is just really easy to access the internet. You know, you can right, act, right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense in terms of why mobile gaming... But what is the appeal of this, of the free-to-play style games? Free-to-play style. Why is that becoming so dominant? Um, compared to like paid games, I mean, there's a lot of people who play for free. Right, right. Yes. For example, in China, you know, 99% of the users don't pay money. Okay. But just uh, 1% or maybe 0.5% of the very rich people pay a lot of money. Pay a lot of money is the reason why the Chinese developers are making money. But for the 1% or 0.5% people who pay a lot of money, there needs to be a lot of people in the game. Right. And a lot of connections, a lot of chance of beating other people (laughs) or being stronger than other people online. So it's important to have the free players around to give the paying players a good experience. Yes. Yes. That makes sense. Yes. But it, it seems like... All those mega hits we talked about before, Candy Crush, Mm -hmm. Clash of Clans, Mm -hmm. were all free to play. Yes. And are fantastically profitable for Mm -hmm. their their makers. Mm -hmm. So if only 0.1% of the people are paying, they must be paying an awful lot. In terms of Candy Crush Saga and Clash of Clans, number of users, 10 times, 100 times compared to normal games. So the vast amount of users is their success. And for example, Candy Crush Saga, you know, once you start getting concentrated into the game, you pay like, you know, 10 cents or 20 cents, but that's, that's it. So the ARPU, average revenue per user, is really low, but the daily active user number is just really vast. So that's why they're making a lot of money. Okay. Because so many games seem to be going that way. Do you see that as kind of the future of gaming or is that just a niche to Um, play I think there's going to be two models, you know. 90% 90% of the games probably would be, you know, free to play. 
Um, in terms of paid games, publishers, it's not going to be ready for sale in the App Store for over a year. So you think the paid games will be necessarily more complex, bigger productions, bigger budget items? Or really simple casual games like, you know, Angry Bird. Oh, okay. Where, where, or, yeah, the other extreme. series, yeah. Right. And, well, before you were mentioning Cyber Agent really does not want to finance multi-year development efforts. So mm-hmm. I guess you guys will be focusing more on the free-to-play style of mm-hmm. gaming. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's talk about some of the, the big things that have been going on in gaming in Japan. Okay. It seems like every 10 years, there's a massive transition in how gaming is done. One of the most telling things that happened, I think, recently was the, the big stock swap between <laughs> Nintendo and DNA. Uh-huh. What I think is fascinating is because, you know, we're all about disrupting Japan. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Nintendo still has incredibly valuable properties with Mario, Mario and Donkey yeah. Kong. Yeah. And, I mean, but they really missed that move from console gaming uh-huh. to the web. Uh-huh. And they never caught up. Uh-huh. DNA seems to have caught that wave of browser-based gaming. Mm-hmm. But they largely seem to have missed this big wave into mobile. Yes. Into open mobile gaming. Uh-huh. What is your take on this? Are they going to come out with something really new and interesting? Or are these just two already disrupted companies that are trying to figure things out? The answer is probably going to be really hard because it's really hard to come up with a free-to-play model of Mario. It might be a really casual game, but it might be more of a mid-core type of you know RPG type of Mario game. But... I think DNA is on their way to becoming successful within, you know, App Store and Google Play nowadays because they have like a couple hits. We're, we're hoping that, you know, um, people who play console games only would come into the smartphone game segment and the population of the smartphone game segment would increase. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yes. Well, I think the one thing everyone expects out of this is seeing Mario on the smartphone. But beyond that, do you think there's something that is new and innovative that's going to come out of this alliance? I don't I don't know. Probably would be a model where, you know, a lot of users, low ARPU. Type right. Games, yes. I think that would be good for the market itself mm-hmm. because it, it'll probably bring a lot of console players to the smartphone. That will end up enlarging the market itself. We talked about that disruption that happened. DNA and Gree, I said they weren't prepared for mobile gaming, but that's obviously wrong because they, mm-hmm. they were big on mobile gaming. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me where they got surprised was the open platforms, the iPhone, the, the Google Play, Android. Right. As the gaming platform becomes more open mm-hmm. and the distribution becomes more open, mm-hmm. PlayStation, Nintendo, they owned it. It was a full stack. You'd bought their development tools, mm-hmm. their hardware, their mm-hmm. software. To the current state of things where you don't need distribution. I mean, mm-hmm. Everyone's got the same distribution. You go through mm-hmm. Apple, you go through Google. Mm-hmm. Do you think that weakens the position or even eliminates the need for game publishers? Well, actually, the cost of developing one game is increasing and increasing and increasing year to year, um, it, it's just become similar to console gaming. You know, the contents is becoming much more richer. Okay. Meaning we need to build a game that's much more beautifuler. Meaning we need a lot of more graphics, artists. The market right now is really, you know, a red ocean. Similar type of games everywhere. And we... There's, there's just two ways. To make a much more richer game or come up with a much more unique game itself. 
Well, this sounds like the exact same arms race, the same escalation that caused so many platform game publishers to go out of business. Yes, yes. It's um, a rough business. Yes, it is a rough business. <laughs> You're going to need much more money. Well, it sounds to me, though, mm-hmm. that one of the big advantages of publishers, just from what you were saying before, it is in that back end and the, the analytics, mm-hmm. the expertise mm-hmm. of optimizing mm-hmm. games in real time. Uh-huh. That's something that probably a small studio wouldn't be able to develop expertise on very quickly, right? Um, I guess, yes, huh. because daily ops and analytics, is, it's about data, data about successful things and data about um, unsuccessful things and all the experience. The more data you have, the more possibility of coming up with the right answer. So, right, right. Yeah. In Japan, we call it unyoryoku. Operational yeah, power. Operational power. Yeah. yeah. Operational know-how, I guess. Yeah, probably yeah, closer. yeah, yeah. All right. So do you think... Um, are consoles going away? No, 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 no. Uh, what's happening in Japan is back in like 2012, 2011, a lot of the console publishers launched their games within the smartphone segment, but didn't become successful. Right. Because they don't have the operation power within the internet segment. They don't know how to run, you know, yeah, yeah. Day, day by day. But nowadays, console game companies... Uh, started building their own, you know, daily ops power within internet segments. Okay. And they're better at producing games, actually. Sure. Well, they certainly have more budget. Yes. Well, budget-wise or experience-wise in terms of game itself, nowadays the console game companies are starting to do well within the smartphone segment by producing rich games, which the internet companies cannot do, like 3D. So do you think that, is that because the... Mobile games, these internet games are becoming richer and richer and more like what the console game companies are used to producing? Uh Or is it that the console game companies are taking this threat seriously and learning how to better design for mobile games? Both. Okay. Um, So they're kind of meeting in the middle. Yes, yes. (laughs) Both. But um, there's always going to be a need for both very rich high-end games and very casual, easy to play kind of game. Sure. Because, and from an internet um, company point of view, it's probably going to be very hard for us to come up with a you know, high-end console game type of smartphone game. So they, they always will have that strong position to yes. push down from. Yes. But there's always going to be a need for simple gameplay or mid-core gameplay because, you know, smartphone... Because when you play games with a smartphone, the game session would be like, you know, one minute to three minutes. Yeah, I, I can. So a console game can be much more immersive. Yes. It can yes. have much deeper <coughs> graphics. People uh-huh. play for hours at a time. Yes. So if it's too rich, it's just going to take too much time to look at one scene. The smartphone gaming should be not too casual, but not too heavy. But Well, and I suppose that's a lot of what your data analytics uh-huh. people are looking for. Uh-huh. Getting gameplay right in mm-hmm. that sweet spot mm-hmm. and being able to adjust it in real time is pretty uh-huh. amazing. I want to give you a quick example. Last week, there was a launch from Square Enix called Mobius Final Fantasy. Okay. This game is a really, really rich, high-end PlayStation 4 kind of game on the fantasy mobile. On, on mobile. After the launch, this game just went through the top grass to like number five. But if you look at the ranking, it's 11 right now. It's doing good, but it's probably too much. It's over 100 megabytes. And if it's over 100 megabytes, you're going to need a Wi-Fi download. Right, yeah. right. Maybe the initial success was just on that Final Fantasy franchise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and we'll see if it has staying power yes, as yes, people actually yes. try to play it. Yes. So we'll just look at it for you know another. Keep an eye on it for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this then, uh, before we wrap up. I do a lot of coaching and, and teaching for entrepreneurs uh-huh. and startups here in Japan. And an awful lot of college guys, uh, they're into gaming. They want to start gaming companies or game-related companies. <clears throat> so what's your advice to someone who wants to get into the gaming industry as a, as a designer or as a developer? Uh-huh. What's the best thing they could do to put them on a successful course? It depends whether they want to go to the console gaming or the smartphone gaming. But if you want to go to the smartphone gaming, play a lot of games. <laughs> really? Play a lot of games in Japan. I, I think they'd like that advice. <laughs> I, think, I think they've got that part of the advice covered, actually. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, play a lot of games, not just in your company, um, in, in your country, but like Chinese games, for okay. example, um, American games. Um, just look at the global trend. And see what's the next big thing, you know. So try to get a really wide perspective yeah, wide on different types of games. Yes. And another thing is success doesn't always come from what you want to make. But you always have to seek what the users in the world want. Mm. want. There's always people who fail by producing what they want. <laughs> and not listening to the customers. Yes, yes. So... I don't know, maybe Hollywood's the same way. But... I've seen it's a lot like music, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, making a hit is mostly about you know answering towards the market. Huh. Yeah. So probably, um, you know, young students would think of, I really want to uh, produce this kind of game or design this kind of game, but that might not be the major answer. So it sounds like the thing they need most is an open mind. They need oh, yes. to be open-minded enough to look at different games from around the world uh-huh. in different types of genres uh-huh. and they need to be open-minded enough to listen when people don't like their game uh-huh. and take that feedback. Uh-huh. Producing is all about building new values into the world, I guess. You always have to listen to the market and you know walk 1.2 steps ahead of them, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's true in, in all business. The you know, listen to your customers. They're the ones that are paying you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Oh, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you very much. And we're back. I have to admit, I was a little relieved to learn that even the leaders inside the gaming industry find it very hard to know what products will be a success before their launch. And although I'm sure Rintaro is right and there will always be a place for rich, immersive console gaming. I can't help but think that mobile, online games have an unfair advantage. Thinking of games as startups, the online game's ability to pivot, to change the balance of gameplay, to introduce new incentives in real time, and perhaps eventually on a player-by-player basis, will allow them to run more experiments, cut their losses early, and make their winning games even better. It looks like both Mario's future and that of Japanese gaming as a whole are going to be very interesting. If you've got an opinion about gaming and the gaming industry, and I know a lot of you do, please drop by disruptingjapan.com slash show 024 and let us know what you think. When you drop by the site, you'll be able to see the links and sites that Rintaro and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And if you get a chance, 
please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can support the show and help us get the word out. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.